Let's bow together. Father, we do thank you so much for your love for us. We thank you so much for your son, Jesus. And Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us to be in your word. And I pray that you would bless it, that you would grant us the ability to understand and then uh, by your power and strength, do what you say so that you'd be greatly glorified in our lives. I ask you to bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I've mentioned this before, but uh, when I was in seminary, uh, which was not a very good time because the seminaries at that time were teaching basically ways to get uh, people into church rather than teaching the Word of God. And part of that was that the way that you get people into church is to address their felt needs the needs that they feel, and then once they get in there, you, and you can somehow get them to listen to the Word, and they'll eventually turn to Jesus or whatever it might be. And that's totally backwards from the truth of God, where we are to be equipped through the Word of God, and then we're to go into the world. And yet, uh, so often, we can be tempted to go after the things that we think we need, the things that we desire or think that we must have, but it is the Word of God that reveals what we truly need. And today we're going to finish uh, the greeting from our study in Colossians, and we're going to see just exactly that, uh, what do we really need. Now, in beginning this book, uh, turn your Bibles to Colossians, actually, chapter 1, and we're going to be uh, looking at verses uh, 1 and 2, but really looking at 2. But as we study this book, uh, I just want to go through the background again, having just begun last week. Here we see from uh, the beginning that the Apostle Paul is the author, and he is writing to believers in Colossae. Now, we know that he is writing this book while he is imprisoned. Indeed, in chapter 4, verse 18, he says, Remember my imprisonment. And we know that this letter is one of four prison epistles, what we call prison epistles, Colossians, Philippians, Ephesians, Philemon, most likely written around 62 A.D., now, there are different theories to where Paul was imprisoned at this time, but uh, I believe the scriptures point to the fact that he was imprisoned in Rome under house arrest. We see in another prison epistle, Philippians chapter uh, 1, uh, that he says that his imprisonment for the cause of Christ has become well known all throughout the whole Praetorian Guard. That would be in Rome. That would be Caesar's special soldiers. And we know in the end, he gives greetings to Caesar's household in the end of uh, Philippians chapter 4, uh, a parallel prison epistle. We also know in the end of Acts 28 that Paul was under house arrest for two years, most likely starting around 60 to 61 AD, going to 63 AD. And we have various references in these epistles to his chains, to his imprisonment. Now, Colossae was about 100 miles east of Ephesus, in ancient Ferga, and it is in the Roman territory of Asia, which is now Turkey. It was one of the three cities in the Lycus River Valley, Laodicea. We have that. We hear about that city in Revelation, don't we? Laodicea, Hierapolis, Hierapolis, and Colossae, which was the smallest. Now, Paul had never visited the Colossians personally, but it's apparent that the gospel had gone throughout all of Asia. We know in Acts chapter 19, verse 10, that he taught in the school of Tyrannus for 
uh, two years, and it says in verse 10, Acts 19, that this took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And we know from Colossians chapter 1, verse 3, which we're going to look at, Lord willing, next week, uh, up to verse 7, that uh, most likely Epaphras came over, got saved, and came back to Colossae and shared the word of God. Look at verse 3 of Colossians chapter 1. Paul says, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, just as in all the world also, and is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing since the, in you also, since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our fellow beloved bondservant who is a, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he has informed us of your love in the Spirit. They heard the word of God. They heard the word of God and they got saved. They heard the, the word of God concerning the grace of God and truth, concerning the person of Jesus Christ, salvation in him alone. And now, although Paul had never visited them, evidently Epaphras has made a journey and come to the Apostle Paul and he has informed uh, the Apostle Paul in Rome of the Colossians' spiritual state. And evidently this letter is a response to that. And although Epaphras had revealed their faith in Jesus and their love which they had for the saints, which I just referred to, there were obvious threats to their faith which were coming along, which were a threat to them. And the Apostle Paul was uh, desiring in Christ to defend them, to protect them. Simply put, these false teachers, chapter 2, verse 4, were attempting to delude them with persuasive arguments. And in these things that they were trying to share with them, Paul sums it up in the end of chapter 2, the last verse, saying, these things are of no value against fleshly indulgence. And that's what happens for us as believers. We come to Jesus Christ, we struggle with the flesh, we struggle in certain areas, we fail and we don't want to fail, we want to obey the Lord, and someone comes along with a little kind of system on how to do this. Uh, uh, make these promises, or, or do these ten things, or, or have this accountability group. Now it's not that it's wrong to have an accountability group, but if you trust in that, that is very wrong. It is Christ who delivers us. Now he can use different things, but he uses his word to alert us of his truth, to convict us, to protect us. And so they were uh, adding in things to Christ, these bad guys. We see in chapter 2, they, they were basically saying you need secret wisdom. You need this wisdom that is only available of secret stuff. You need to be involved in religious rituals. That will help you out. Uh, you need the help of angels. You need angels to help you out. You need to follow certain rules to be holy. You actually need to treat your body very severely to keep it from sinning. They would give all these solutions to this, uh, this uh, fleshly indulgence, but what it was was really a th- a, a, uh, um, an attack on the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And so the Apostle Paul writes this letter, and in response, he clearly relays what they truly need, and it is a focus on the person of Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, he is our Redeemer, and he is the Creator. He is before all things. And he holds all things together. 
Uh, he is the head of the body. He is preeminent. He is fully God and fully man. He died for us to present us holy and blameless, and he is in you, and you are in him. And in him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Don't get taken captive, but trust him. Uh, set your mind on the things above. Renew your heart with his truth. Uh, dwell. Let the word dwell richly in you. Say no to sin. Clothe yourselves with Christ, uh, uh, letting his peace rule. Let his word rule your heart also. Renewing your mind, being controlled by his spirit, allowing his word to govern all your actions. And within that, the word dwelling richly through admonishing and teaching and true, true worship, we see, uh, we are to obey him in all our relationships, uh, with the marriage relationship, the parent-child relationship, the slave-master relationship, and our relationship to outsiders. And so, again, this book is a very important book. And so we come to the end of the greeting today, and then we'll get into our verse-by-verse study next week, Lord willing. But we're going to see again what we really, truly need. Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. Now, it's super easy to zoom past this and go, okay, yeah, hey, hello, hello, grace to you, peace, hey, good, all right, let's get into the letter. And it's super easy to do that, but God gives us this for a reason. For a reason. Now, certainly in the world, our greetings can be very flippant and have maybe not much meaning behind them. But here, uh, this is quite important because all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable, right? We'll see. So then, what do we really need? Well, we saw last time in chapter, in chapter 1, verse 1, that we have a tremendous privilege, tremendous privilege and a grand purpose to serve the living God that he has gifted us uniquely. And the Apostle Paul exemplified that by understanding and declaring the truth of his gifting in Christ. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Paul was called an apostle uh, by Jesus Christ, by the will of God. I'm not going to review what we saw last time, but Paul understood his gifting and calling. He didn't say, Paul... I sort of know how God wants me to serve him, but I'm not sure. You know, he, he knew how God had called him to serve. Paul, an apostle. He knew he was an apostle. He knew that was the truth, and he was serving within that. And it was by God's will. Paul wasn't a self-made apostle. He was by the will of God. He was called apostle. Jesus Christ calling him. And folks, we are to serve the Lord, and we're to serve the Lord in every area of our lives. Serve the Lord at home uh, with our families, obeying the Lord. Serving the Lord with our spouses, uh, obeying Him. Serving the Lord in our work, obeying Him. Serving the Lord out in the the, the, the world as we uh, interact with non-believers righteously according to God's will. But yet we are also to serve in the body of Christ. We're to serve the Lord. First Peter chapter 4 says, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Now that verse is not there to make you feel guilty. That verse is there to reveal truth to you that God by his grace has given us giftings to serve one another in the body of Christ by his grace. And there are differing gifts. 
And there are two categories we see in First Peter. Whoever speaks, let him speak as the very oracles of God, speak God's word over serve, serve by the strength that God supplies so that in all things God will be glorified through Christ Jesus. There are serving and speaking gifts, and those are listed in uh, the, 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 the four passages. We have Ephesians 4. We have First Peter 4, the, the categories. We have First uh, Corinthians chapter 12, right? And we also have First uh, Corinthians... Um, what are they? Romans chapter 12. So the 12, 12, 4, 4. And so we have these gifts. We're to serve the Lord. We were saved to serve the Lord. We weren't saved just to get into heaven. We were saved to serve. We're saved for a new life. We were serving ourselves actively before we came to Christ. We were serving our sin. We served it really well. We served it every day. We served our desires, and now we come to Christ, and he sets us free from sin and self to serve him, and there's joy in that, and there's, 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 there's a, it's a wonderful thing. Let me share a couple passages concerning serving. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy chapter 10. If you're not sure what your gifting is, ask the Lord, and, and be around the body of Christ. Pray. Be in the word of God. God's word equips us to serve, right, for the works of service. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul? What does he require? Fear him, um, love him, right? Uh, Walk in his ways and serve him with a whole heart. It's not a half-hearted serving, it's a whole heart. I'm I'm sold over to serve my Lord. That's why I'm here. It's what I'm doing. I'm serving him certainly in all those areas that I obey him, those relationships I mentioned before, but we also serve in the context of the body of Christ. Chapter 10, verse 20 of Deuteronomy. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and cling to him. Cling to him. And you shall swear by his name. He is your praise. He is your God who has done these great and awesome things for you which your eyes have seen. Now they saw the Lord part the Red Sea. They saw what God did with the nations and these great and awesome things. We have seen him change us. He has delivered us from darkness to light. He has changed our hearts. Chapter 11, verse 3 of Deuteronomy. It shall come about, if you listen obediently to my commands that I am commanding you today, to love the Lord God, to serve him with all your heart and soul. He will give you rain for your land at season and early and late, that you may gather your grain, your new wine and oil. He will give you grass for your fields and your cattle. You shall eat and be satisfied. This is to the Jews, by the way. Beware, lest your hearts be deceived and you turn away and serve other gods and worship them. Now, we don't see everyone turning and serving other gods blatantly, you know, but we see people who are who are uh, offering up strange fire in churches, serving other Jesuses, not the Jesus from Scripture they're, they're yelling and shouting about. Uh, we see that. And certainly we know uh, the ultimatum that uh, Joshua gave in Joshua 24. He said, hey, this is, uh, this is the ultimatum. If you want to go back and serve those gods that you did in Egypt, go ahead and do that. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, when you think of serving, does that mean you are being served? 
No, we're serving the Lord. We're actually doing tasks for him. He has things for us to do. And I tell you, if you don't have something to do in this life, you are a miserable person. You know, people are looking for things to do. They're looking for things to occupy their time. And God has given us the grand privilege to serve him by serving one another. What a tremendous reality. Tremendous reality. And I had read this during our operatory time, but uh, Samuel in his farewell address talks about serving the Lord with a whole heart, only fear the Lord and serve him. So second, first Samuel 12, 23, uh, in truth with your whole heart, consider what great things he's done for you. Wow, what a great exhortation. So then, do you see yourself as a servant of Christ? I'm going to serve you, Lord. What a blessing it is. It's not a drudgery service. It's a, it's a joyful service. You know, you can be a, 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 a servant that's treated horribly, or you can be a servant that your master died for your sins and gave himself for you and loves you. That's a different kind of serving, by the way, serving a good master. So then, the Apostle Paul is very clear and understood uh, how God had gifted him. And he also, we saw, served with those who were faithful to the Lord. He chose who to hang with. You know, Paul would also tell Timothy in Second uh, Timothy to seek fellowship with those, I'm paraphrasing, of, of those of like mind. You know, be around those who are, want to serve Christ. Be around those who want to obey Christ, who, who, you know, pursue faith, righteousness, and love. We see that. And so we looked at Timothy. He's a good guy. We looked last week at Timothy uh, through Philippians chapter 2, and we saw that he was single-minded. He wasn't a double-minded man. He was single-minded, focused on the things of Christ. And he was a visibly proven servant. He had visibly demonstrated, not for people's response, but it was demonstrated in his life that he was a servant of the Lord. He was, it was proven. And we also saw he was a submissive servant. Paul said, He'll do whatever I ask him to do. He was submissive to the spiritual authority that was placed above him. The Apostle Paul, the Lord, was giving him commands through Paul. I find it very interesting, by the way, having pastored for many years, uh, you can tell when someone's submitted to the Lord, they just go, yeah. Or you have people, many people, you know, you ask them to do the littlest things and they get all bent out of shape or they want to do it there. Whatever it is, it's just, it's like pulling teeth. But when someone's like Timothy, they want to serve the Lord. And the scripture says he was like a child serving his father. We see that. So we get this great example of Paul and Timothy. And it reminds us that we have this great privilege. Privilege. It's a privilege. The Lord has invited us to serve him. Wow, what a privilege. And he has gifted us and given us everything we need to serve him. What a tremendous Wonderful reality. Tremendous, wonderful reality. So with that in mind, uh, we see that uh, wonderful, wonderful truth. Now, um, as we continue here, we also need to recognize something. Not only has he given us a tremendous position, or not a position, but a tremendous privilege to serve him, and and the that we also are in a glorious position. And we'll see what I mean by that. Look at our passage now. Uh, chapter 1, verse 1. I'll read that and we'll get to our verse here. Chapter two, Verse 2. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful 
brethren who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Here we see the Apostle Paul addresses two interrelated groups that are at Colossae. He relates, he speaks to the saints and the faithful brethren in Christ. He's saying, hey, Paul and Timothy, greetings to you guys in Colossae, the saints and faithful brethren in Christ. And this leads us to uh, ask the question, who are the saints? Wow, the, the Holy Fathers from the Catholic Church were there? Uh, well, that's what some might say, right? Uh, but the reality is that's not what God is saying. You see, the question who the saints are has been obscured by evil man-made religion of the Catholic Church. And we're not to get our definition of sainthood from uh, the so-called Holy Fathers. We're to get our definition from Scripture because it's quite different from what they say. They look at sainthood as those who have done so many good deeds to the point where they've elevated themselves above others that they're saints. Not true. Not true at all, as we're going to see. Now, this word saints, we're going to see, uh, has to do with the idea of being set apart. It comes from the Greek word hagios. It literally means to be set apart in context uh, by God unto God, okay? It's where we get through its derivatives, the words holy and sanctified. And scripture reveals that those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ are saints. They are those who have been set apart and are now holy because of their relationship with the Holy One, Jesus Christ. Contrary to those views from the Catholic Church and other places, how somehow you earn a high spiritual position and then get the title of sainthood or whatever it might be, Scripture reveals that saints are those because of faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ. Indeed, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul addresses the Corinthian church. Now, we know they weren't so saintly at times, by the way, at least in their actions. But how does he address them? How does he address them? Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. Saints by calling. He says here, this is the church of God, uh, which is in Corinth, and these things are in opposition grammatically, saints by calling. The church of God in Corinth, saints by calling. It's speaking of the two as the same group. The church are the saints. And they are those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. You see, the Lord called us unto salvation through the gospel. When we responded, we were set apart from sin, sanctified in Christ. We were declared righteous because of the redemption and forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus. We are saints. We are saints. First Corinthians, up a little farther in chapter 6, turn up chapter 6, 1 Corinthians 6. Paul says uh, in verse 9, Or do you not know? that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Hey, they're not going to be in the kingdom, those in their sins. Do not be deceived. Now, the people who deceive are the, are, are the bad churches, by the way, the main lines that say, come on in, be as you are, and stay as you are, and you're good to go. Well, that's not, hey, everyone's welcome to hear the gospel. Everyone's welcome, but we need to respond to the gospel, you see? And God will then change us. 
He says here, do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. That's just the truth. He says, and notice this is such a wonderful phrase, and such some of you were. You were there. You were identified by your sin. But you were what? Washed. You were sanctified. That means set apart. But you were justified. That means declared to be right with God. Righteous uh, in the name of of the Lord Jesus Christ in the spirit of our God. Tremendous truth. When you place your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, you were placed into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And therefore, because of his death, burial, and resurrection, which now applies to you, being redeemed, the price paid through his blood, we receive the forgiveness of sins and we are declared righteous because of Jesus Christ. We've been set apart. We've been set apart saints by calling. God called us unto himself to be holy. First of all, holy in position. In position with God, we're holy, we're righteous. We're righteous, but then ultimately holy in behavior and then glorified, right? We see that. And so then, we are saints by calling. God called us out of the sinful world unto himself, and we are saints. Now, we're not saints because of our behavior, by the way. The Lord Jesus did not say, you're a saint because, Greg, you didn't yell at your wife. You know, Greg, you're a saint because you did a great job at work. We're not saints because of anything we have done. We are saints because of what Jesus Christ did for us. Indeed, these Colossians are called saints, but they're not saints because of their behavior. Now, I'm going to say in a moment, being a saint because of our relationship with Christ should motivate us to be holy and blameless, to to go on to be sanctified more and more. But they're not saints because of their behavior, or they would not have been commanded, and us commanded also. Colossians 3, 8, and 9. To the saints, by the way, but you put aside all anger, wrath, malice, abusive speech, wrath. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. Hey, if someone was a saint and, they, and it was based on behavior, they wouldn't be need to be told to do that, right? Same thing with Colossians chapter 3.18. Wives, be subject to your husbands as fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Do not be embittered towards them, right? Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children that they may not lose heart. Well, saints wouldn't do that, would they? Yes, saints do sin. We do, but we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and we should be growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, sinning less and less, being made more like Jesus Christ. We're on our way to glory, but we're not there yet. But we are saints in position, and that's important. It's extremely important. It is a glorious position because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And guess what? Satan is always trying to tempt us to see ourselves wrongly. You blew it, you dirty sinner. Well, yes, I'm a sinner saved by grace, and I have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And his will for me is to not sin more, but he's going to help me. He's going to come to my aid. He's going to deliver me from temptation. He's a faithful God. So then, the term saints... It's not speaking of a special group of Christians who reach a level of holiness. It's speaking of believers in Jesus Christ. Now, I mentioned this before, but our position in Christ should motivate us to want to be holy because that's God's will. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. This is God's will for us to not only be holy in position, but holy in our behavior. 1 Peter chapter 1. 
verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance. In your, excuse me, in your ignorance, by the way. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The reality is, our position as saints should motivate us to want to be uh, uh, what we are in position, in practice, to be more and more like our, our, our Savior, Jesus Christ. But it is God, by His Spirit, through His Word, in the context of abiding in Jesus, that causes us, makes us, more like his son Jesus. It's all through a relationship that we're made more like him. So then here we see it is to the saints. And notice he says also to another group, and faithful brethren in Christ, back in Colossians, who are at Colossae. And by on the note here, it says who are at Colossae, uh, but really in the Greek it's in Colossae and in Christ. We'll see that later on. There's two ends. Okay, we'll look at that in a minute. But here, there's another group. First of all, he talks about faithful brethren. But first of all, what are brethren? We talked about that last time. This word also speaks of being from the same womb. Uh, and so here, when you, and most of us have brothers and sisters, we know about family. Uh, it speaks of origin. But here, it's not speaking of physical origin, it's speaking of spiritual origin. You see, we are in the domain of darkness until we believe in Jesus Christ. We are in Satan's domain. We are his spiritual children. And when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are brought into the family of God. We are adopted into the family of God. And what a great privilege it is. 1 John 3, 1, see how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God, and such we are. How great a love it is. Tremendous. We're, we are members of one body. We are brethren, brothers and sisters to one another. It is a higher relationship than our physical family, by the way. Now, does that mean we treat our physical family bad? No way. We're to honor and we're to respect and we're to love. But it's a higher relationship. And I mentioned this last week. The Lord Jesus, it was reported to him in Luke chapter 8 that his mothers and brothers were out there and they wanted to see him. And the Lord Jesus uh uh, answer to them, my mother and brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. That's my real family. That's the higher family. That's it. So then we have entered into a higher relationship. We are brothers and sisters bound together by a common spiritual origin, having been adopted into the family of God. And so Paul calls them brethren. But here he has addressed the entire church as saints. And then he says, and faithful brethren, another group, right? But they're related, right? The saints is everybody, brethren is everybody, but faithful brethren, I believe, is speaking of a group within a group. He's addressing the believers in Colossae and the faithful brethren. There's a group of people that have been faithful, and he's talking to them. We're going to talk about that. Not every Everyone is a saint in Christ, if you believe in Jesus, but not every saint is faithful. It's just a reality. It's just the reality. Not everyone's faithful. Uh, you know, and praise the Lord, if we're faithless, he's faithful, right? Praise the Lord. But here, it's a tremendous statement about what should be said about us in Christ. It doesn't say perfect brethren. It says faithful brethren, right? It says here, uh, a tremendous statement about all that we should be, faithful brethren in Christ. You see, faithfulness speaks of trustworthiness, 
Uh, those who are faithful are worthy of trust. They are reliable and dependable. And this is concerning in the context of brethren in Christ. And faithfulness is required of servants of the Lord. When God tells you to do something from his word, when he entrusts you with a gift or talent, we are to do it faithfully by his strength. A faithful man keeps his word. And that doesn't mean God might not change the circumstances and where one might not appear to be faithful to, to slander errors. Like Paul, he made a promise to the Corinthians that he was going to come, but God changed that and he didn't come. It wasn't that he wasn't faithful, it was that he was faithful to the Lord and following the Lord. But a faithful man trusts in the Lord and does what the Lord asks him to do. Now, God reveals what he wants us to do in every relationship in his word. He reveals what we are to be as husbands and wives. He reveals what we are to be as children, what we are to be as uh, workers or, or masters of those. He reveals that we are to be in, uh, towards outsiders. He reveals that we are to be in church. And so then, I believe you know if you're faithful or not. You know, and maybe the spheres I've mentioned, you know, your marriage, your work, uh, raising your children, the fair man, maybe you're not, maybe you weren't, maybe you are. Uh, you know if you're faithful to your husband or wife. Uh, and you know if you're faithful to the calling which God has called you. Yet some may not know what that calling is. God's a faithful God. He'll reveal it to you if you truly want to know it. You seek his word as silver and gold. You desire to know what he wants you to do, and he'll, he'll reveal that to you. You see, God requires us to be faithful. He actually requires that. But the wonderful thing is, to be faithful, that means we've got to trust and abide in him, and then he does it through us. He requires that which he provides. Turn to Matthew 24. Matthew 24. We have been given as stewards over things. And uh, God is requiring us to respond in a certain way. And that has to do certainly with the giftings that he's given us. Matthew 24, verse 44. For this reason, you be ready too. For the Son of Man is coming in an hour in which you do not think he will. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master has put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? And here's the answer to the question. Blessed is that, is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Doing, right? Uh, doing what he's called him to do. Truly I say to you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time, and shall begin to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day in which he does not expect, and an hour which he does not know, and shall cut him into pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites, where there shall be weeping, and we shall be there weeping shall be there and gnashing of teeth. If you're not a faithful slave, it may be an evidence you don't know the, the master, by the way. So then, it is required that we're faithful. Chapter Matthew 25, I'm not going to read it, but we know about the parable of the talents. Uh, what is said? Well done, when was the, well done, thou good and faithful slave or servant. Good and faithful. 
In Luke chapter 16, verse 10, uh, Jesus mentions the one who is faithful in the little thing. He's going to make uh, him faithful also. He'll be faithful also, also in much. You see, either you are faithful or you are not. Uh, and if you are in Christ through faith in him, you should be faithful. Paul would speak to the Ephesians as those who are faithful in Christ Jesus, some of those. He spoke of Tychicus as a beloved and faithful minister in the Lord, Ephesians chapter 6, 21. He spoke of Epaphras here in chapter 1, verse 7, as a beloved bondservant who is a faithful servant of Christ. Paul observed his servant, and he's a faithful servant of Christ on your behalf. Uh, he had mentioned Tychicus again in Colossians, a beloved and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord. These are people being mentioned by name. Hey, they are faithful servants of the Lord. Paul would, or Peter, excuse me, would call Silvanus, that's Silas, our faithful brother, for so I regard him. 1 Peter 5.12. Hebrews chapter 3, the Lord would testify of Moses that he was faithful in all his house as a servant. Moses was faithful. Hey, a few little spits here and there, some problems, but Moses was faithful, faithful servant. The apostle Paul said the Lord considered him faithful, putting him into service. 1 Timothy 1.12. Speaking of woman deacons, which is not a leadership position, but as a recognized servant, he says, uh, Paul tells Timothy, they are to be faithful in all things. Pretty strong command, 1 Timothy 3.11. And folks, we should be able to recognize faithful men and teach them that they would teach others. We see that in uh, 2 Timothy uh, 2.2. And all these things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will teach others. That means you can identify them. And by the way, then that means we can be identified whether we're faithful. Are we faithful in what God has called us to do? You might remember we saw in Nehemiah chapter 7 where Nehemiah put Hananiah, the commander of the fortress, in charge of Jerusalem, for he was a faithful man who feared God more than many. A faithful man. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul just kind of brings it all down to a nutshell here. Uh, First Corinthians 4, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, First Corinthians 4, 2, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy or faithful. It's required. Folks, we're to be faithful to what the Lord calls us to do. Every one of us should be faithful. Now, sadly, it's not always the case. But I want to encourage you, if you have failed... God's a good God. He's a forgiving God. He's a gracious God. And you can turn and be faithful today by his power and strength, by abiding in him and trusting in him, whether it's in all those areas, as the spheres I've mentioned, your marriage and with your kids, raising them. Also, It's Christ that enables us to be faithful. The faithful man is not one who's faithful by pulling up his faithful bootstraps. He's faithful because he's relying on Jesus and obeying his word. You see? And today you can do that. If you find yourself convicted, I have not been faithful in this or that or whatever it might be, forgive me, Lord God, and help me to trust you and step out in faith that I would be a faithful servant for your glory. God's a good God. He's a faithful God. 
So then, if the Lord was to comment about you by name, would he say you're a faithful servant? So-and-so, would he say that? Would he say that? Will Jesus say to you, well done, thou good and faithful servant? Or will he say something else? If you need to confess, step out by his power and strength and trust him, trust the faithful one to faithfully work through you, and he will. Because that's the secret to the faithful, is Jesus. They trust and obey him. And if you trust and obey him, you're going to be faithful. You're going to be faithful. Okay, so back in our passage, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ. There's a group of people faithful there. The faithful brethren. And notice he says, in Christ. And I mentioned this earlier. There's, you can't see it in the English, but there are two. En means in, 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 in a sense, in Greek. It means it's a directional pronoun. Uh, there's those who are in Colossae. That's the, the, the direction they are. And also... Or, or the sphere, and they are also in Christ. Their physical location was Colossae, but their spiritual position was in Christ. And that's what we are if we've trusted in Jesus. Saints and faithful brethren in Christ. This word in Christ describes what it means to be saved. You see, when you repent of your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ, uh, God who took in human flesh and died for your sins and rose from the dead. You are delivered from the domain of darkness, transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son, Colossians 1.13. You are redeemed. The payment for your sin was paid for by Jesus Christ. It is applied to you, Colossians 1.14. You are baptized or placed into the body of Christ, identified with Christ, Colossians 2.12 and Romans 6. You are set apart or sanctified in Christ, 1 Corinthians 1, 2, and 6, 1. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you, Christ in you. You are in Christ and he is in you. 1 Corinthians 3, 16, 6, 19, and Romans 8, 11. Once separated by sin, we are now together with him forgiven, Colossians 2, 13. We become his possession, bought by a great price through the precious blood of the Lamb, 1 Corinthians 6, 19, and 20. We are united to the very life of Christ. We are in Christ. Romans chapter 6. You see, without Christ, we are in our sins, identified by them. But once we believe in Jesus Christ, trust in him, we are united to him, and we are placed into a relationship with him. We are in Christ. We are in Christ. Tremendous reality. We were washed, we were sanctified, we were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God, 1 Corinthians 1. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, He made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin on our behalf. That means he took our sin, bore in his body, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We are saints because we were set apart in Christ. He is holy. We are in Christ. We are forgiven in Christ. So I ask you, are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? Have you trusted in the Lord? Are you in Christ as a relationship with him through faith? I pray so. So then, we see here, we are to walk in an understanding of our glorious position. 
who we are in Christ. We are in Christ. We are saints. And we have the opportunity to faithfully serve him. And lastly, from our passage, I believe we need to function and walk in the provision of his grace. That's what we need. We need to function and walk in the provision of his grace. Uh, Here's the greeting in the end of verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Very simple salutation. Here we see God's desire for us. It's a common greeting of Paul. It is in every epistle except First and Second Timothy. There are ten to be exact, he says this, with the phrase grace to you and peace, or, or then grace and peace uh, in Titus chapter 1. Now some would say, hey, this is just a standard greeting like hello or you know shalom or whatever with no meaning behind it. That's not the truth. Scripture doesn't have no meaning behind it. Uh, there is meaning behind it. This is very important. You see here, because on a surface level, certainly it was a greeting that was used in this manner. But here we can be assured in the inspired writing that it is more than just a surface greeting. Because all scripture is profitable. It's inspired and profitable, right? So then he says here, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And New King James adds in, and Jesus our Lord, a different uh, manuscript family. Some of the other greetings have that, so they add it in there. Ours here has... Uh, has uh, God the Father. So what is grace? Well, the term translated grace, charis, in its most basic form speaks of an unearned gift, unmerited favor, uh, non-metorious favor, that means you didn't earn it, you didn't do anything to get it, that was freely bestowed as a gift, never in return for anything done, never in return. Uh, yet in our scripture we see that it is also none other than an attribute of, attribute of the living God. First Peter 5.10 speaks of the God of all grace, the God of all grace. And the only way we can understand grace is in the context of the God of all grace. Indeed, we see God's unmerited favor towards mankind in the person of Jesus Christ revealed in the scripture. We know the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and John writes that we beheld his glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace. And truth, full of grace. Jesus is full of grace. And that grace was manifest in him coming and dying for our sins. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. The offer is there. Uh, wonderful truth, Titus chapter 2, 11. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. You know his unmerited favor toward you. That though he was rich in his glory, he became poor and lived the perfect life and bore your sins in his body on the cross. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That through his poverty you might become rich, spiritually rich, in salvation, a relationship with the living God. We know that it is God being great uh, and rich in his, in his great mercy because of his great love, which he loved us, even while... We were dead in our transgressions and sins. We had nothing to give to him. He made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you've been saved. And raised us up with him, seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in order in the ages to come that he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Trophies of his grace forever. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. Grace is what God does for sinful man through his son, Jesus Christ. 
which man cannot earn, does not deserve, and will not merit. But that grace doesn't stop at the cross. God provides his grace for us to function every day. And it comes in the context of the grace of God, the God of grace, a relationship with him. It's everything from God and nothing from us. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15 that he labored, but he says it's the, it's the Lord that did it through me by his grace. 1 Corinthians 15.8, and the last of all, as it were, to one untimely born, speaking of the Lord appearing to Paul. He appeared to me also, for I am the least of the apostles, who is not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. So his grace made him into an apostle, made him who he was, saved man, and says, I labored more than all of them, the other apostles, yet not I, the grace of God with me. Jesus in me. His grace functioning. God's so gracious, he'll work through you. He's gracious. The God of the universe, Jesus Christ in you, you're in Christ. He'll work through you. His grace will function in you for every relationship, for every situation, for everything he has, if you just trust him. If you just trust him. We've been given gifts, and thereby the manifold, their manifestations of the manifold grace of God. First Peter 4, 10 and 11. In 2 Peter 1, 2, he says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you. May it be multiplied. Not just added, multiplied. That's God's desire. You see, the Christian life is about functioning in the grace of God. That's what it is. We're saved by grace. We function by his grace. Everything from him, nothing from us. All Christ in us. Remember Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. It's impossible to live in the context of grace unless we recognize our true state of inadequacy, but yet his adequacy and faithfulness. Not that we are adequate to consider anything that's coming from ourselves, 2 Corinthians 3, 5, but our adequacy is from God. It's Christ in us. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9 the Lord said to Paul after his petition to get the thorn out, my grace is sufficient. Oh, we whine and moan about everything, and we just want to remember how the Lord speaking to us through his word. My grace is sufficient. It's going to get you through. It's what you need. It's sufficient. My power is perfected in weakness. In weakness. Tremendous, wonderful reality. The Christian life is about functioning in the grace of God, grace to you, his grace to you, more and more and more, his grace to you. That's a good greeting. That's a good greeting. That's God's desire for us, grace to you. We need to walk in the provision of his grace. But something else that's wonderful is there's something that happens when we walk in the provision of his grace. He says, grace to you and an upset, worried heart. He says peace, right? He says peace. He says, but it's not now the, the, the NIVs kind of hacked this up a little bit. They say grace and peace to you. No, it's really grace to you and peace. That's how it goes, which implies that peace never comes before grace. It's not both of them coming at the same time. It's God's grace, then his peace. You see, when we first had our first encounter with the grace of God and the person of Christ and believed in him, we received his peace. 
Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. In position, we have peace with God through his grace. We know that he made peace through the blood of his cross. We have peace. There's no enmity between us and God. But along with that positional peace, we have a practical peace, experiential peace, when we abide in the grace of God, when we trust in Christ. Philippians 4, 6, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. You're, you're relating to the God, Lord. You're, you're walking with him. You're, you're giving him your request. You're, you're sharing it with him. You're, you're supplicating before him. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. It says, If there's anything excellent, anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. Verse 8, not things you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, the God of peace will be with you. God of peace will be with you. Jesus says, my peace, I leave with you. My peace, I give you, not as the world gives. The implication is through his spirit and his indwelling, right? He leaves his peace with us. Chapter 3 of Colossians, verse 15, let the peace of Christ Rule your hearts. Let it umpire your hearts, is the word. Let God's peace be that which uh, which directs you. Right? Grace and peace to you. Now, where does this come from? It doesn't come from the world. Jesus said, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives. The world never gives peace. The world gives a lie. It's not peace at all. You go seeking those things to, to get peace, it's not going to happen. It's a lie. Not as the world gives. Jesus says, my peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. And so where does it come from? What does the scripture say? Grace and peace to you from God our Father. God gives us his peace when we abide in his grace. So let me ask you, are you resting in the grace of God? Are you trusting in the God of grace? Are you experiencing his peace? If not, God's a good God. Turn to him. He'll give it to you. You may need to confess. You may need to refocus, whatever it might be. But trust in the Lord with all your heart. True peace is a result of an encounter with the grace of God in the person of Christ. So then we have the ultimate provision, all we need. We got Jesus. We have everything we need. And it's by grace. We don't deserve it, but he gives it to us himself. God's desire, grace to you and peace. So then, what do we really need? Well, the modern day church would say, you need all this stuff. You need this, this, and this, and this. What we really need is Jesus. We need to rely on him and trust in him. We need to walk in the context of how he's gifted us. We need to rest in the position we are and praise him for this glorious position we have in Christ. And we need to rely on his grace, his provision, and we'll experience his peace. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your tremendous love for us. Thank you for your grace, which was poured out and is poured out through your son, Jesus. May we be those who function by your grace because your grace is sufficient. May we allow your, your power in the context of your grace to be perfected in our weakness. May we trust you. And Father, as we trust you, then you will prove in us your faithfulness, Lord God. It's not us, it's you. 
So, Lord, I thank you for what we've seen today. May we renew our minds with your truth. May we be refreshed, Lord God, so that we would rely on you completely and that you would get all the glory. Pray this in Jesus' name.